Hey, this is Pastor Sam. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our sermon series from the book of Ruth called The Broken Road to Glory. I pray that this resource will be helpful for you as you make disciples in community and on mission throughout our city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I should, not, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. As Steph read Ruth chapter 3, I could tell by the lack of shock on your face. I could tell by the lack of earmuffs, not over the ears of minors, that most of us do not understand the scandal of what's going on here in Ruth chapter three. And so I think we got some work to do to unpack this because what we just read in Ruth chapter three ranks among some of the most scandalous passages throughout the entirety of scripture. 
And, uh, and with that, I'm gonna move into the sermon with some sensitivity. This is probably a PG plus sermon, okay? I'm gonna be tactful in how we deal with this um, be, because you just have to know that this is a sexually charged interaction that is probably far too risque for any flannel graphs that you might have had in uh, Sunday school. So with that, and what, what makes this funny to me is how people approach the Bible as, I don't like the Bible is boring. It's hard for me to read the Bible. It seems so boring, so dull. But, but when we actually approach the scripture and see what the scripture has in store for us, we see the Bible is truthfully and painfully portraying the whole range of human experience. And because it does that, it has the, the ability to connect to us regardless of what culture or time or location, or age we find ourselves in at the moment. God's word is timeless, not old and ancient in the way that it becomes outdated, but timeless in that there's never a time where it's not applicable or useful for our lives. And so what what I believe God is doing in our church is he's using the story of Ruth these two widows who, who are on the broken road to glory to speak into our own lives 3,000 years later as we navigate our own broken roads. So I, I, I know where some of you are coming from. As I look out, I see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, I know some of your stories and I know that you have had your own broken road and in a lot of ways, you're still on that broken road. But if I don't know you, I know that you're likely to be on a broken road too. That there are unsuspected twists and turns in our lives. There are a mixture of heartbreaks and blessings. Rarely is there a direct path from where we are now to where we want to be. And by examining Ruth's and Naomi's broken road to glory, they help us learn how to navigate our own. And today, what I wanna show you, we've been kind of unpacking through uh, the first couple chapters, piece by piece, what God has for us here as we wrestle with this story. What I wanna show you here today, specifically sticking with Ruth chapter three, is that character, godly character, is the key to navigating the broken road. Sometimes we are limited in our ability to improve our situations, Sometimes things are the way that we are, no matter what we do or no matter what we try, can't really improve things. But here's the reality. Our character always has the ability to tank our circumstances. That there's always a way that we can make things worse if we do not have godly character. We can compound the dysfunction and the brokenness. We can increase the pain and make the broken road even more broken. And what Ruth chapter three does is give us guardrails to avoid that. She helps us avoid compounding the tragedy So that's where we're gonna go today. Will you pray for me? I'll pray for you. And we will jump into Ruth chapter three. Father, I thank you for your people, this congregation, that the fact that there are people here in the pews speaks. It's a testament to your grace, seeking and saving the lost, that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, God, and that you have done a magnificent work in the person and work of Jesus to bring us from death to life. 
And so, God, I pray that you would do uh, uh, some of that today, that if there are non-believers in the room, that you bring them from death to life, that show us Jesus in this passage. But God, I pray for the saints, those who have faith in Jesus, that this would be a means for our sanctification, that your word would wash us to make us more and more like Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help me to think clearly, to speak with precision this morning as we go through a tricky text. I pray that the the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, and would our hearts be ready to receive what the Holy Spirit has for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Before we jump into Ruth chapter three, uh, I'd like to refresh your memory. It's been a week, you know, we forget some stuff. Or or if you're just joining with us, uh, joining us now, I wanna kind of catch you up on what's going on in the story because we're literally jumping in right in the middle of it. this story opens in Ruth chapter one with tragedy. Uh, it starts off in, in a complex situation. We see this family uh, of Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two sons who are, they have made their way from Bethlehem, which is the place where God is. It's, it's a part of the chosen or the promised land. And, and they, it's actually ironic because Bethlehem means the house of bread, and in this time they found themselves in a famine, that the house of bread doesn't have no bread. And so they say, all right, well, we're, we're gonna go, and we're gonna go to this foreign land, and hopefully we have some opportunity there where we can get the food that we need. And so they flee from famine from Bethlehem, and they go to Moab. And in Moab, this is, this is not necessarily the, this is not God's people. This is not God's land, so they're very much foreigners in this foreign land, and here in Moab, things go from bad to worse where Elimelech dies. Unfortunately, the two sons Naomi has, they marry, um, they marry Moab, Moabite women, which is kind of complex, but they get married, but shortly after they get married, uh, the two sons pass away, and so Naomi is here, she's a widow, she lost her sons, Um, we've got uh, Orpah and Ruth, who are her sister or her daughter-in-laws, and they're kind of in a spot where life is hard for them. And here, in in this sort of situation, here, this, and, and the complexity of the situation is because her sons didn't have any kids. There is no heir. There is no children to take care of Naomi in her old age and make sure that she has the provisions that she needs to live her life out to a long old age. Um, The daughters, Orpah and Ruth, they don't have husbands to sort of take that role. We talked about the kinsman-redeemer relationship where the next in line would have the responsibility to marry the widowed woman and provide for her stability to redeem her property and her land, to offer her an heir to the brother's name. And so they don't have any of this. And so Naomi is here in Moab and things are hard. And she articulates later on in chapter one of how she left Bethlehem full and here she stands in Moab and she's empty. Her husband's gone, her kids are gone, there's no financial provisions. All she really has are these two daughter-in-laws and because of this she says, you can call me bitter. Now Naomi's name actually means pleasant or sweet. So she's saying like foundationally I've gone from being a pleasant or sweet person to now I'm experiencing Bitterness, and she is just down in the pits, but she hears that God had visited her people in Bethlehem, that the famine had come to an end, and so she decides, I'm gonna take a risk, I'm gonna move, I'm gonna transplant my life from Moab and go back to where I came from, and 
Orpah decides to stay behind in her own land. Ruth proves her loyalty to Naomi and goes back with her. Now, we talked about this being a risky trip. It's probably about a two-week journey from Moab on foot, from Moab back to Bethlehem as two women. And in chapter two, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem. They're looking for food. They have hopes to be reconnected with some sort of family, with some sort of structure that they could be provided for. And as they come back to Bethlehem, it so happens that the barley harvest is beginning. So in this, Ruth goes out to the field. She, she is able to kind of line up and, and, and be under the care of this man who is a relative named Boaz. And through Boaz, God abundantly provides both food and protection for Ruth. And in this interaction, we start to see there's a little bit of a romance that's starting to be kindled here. There's a little bit of a spark. There's this hope that, that it's, it's known to us that, that Boaz is an eligible bachelor. He's maybe a little bit older. Naomi is a widow. She's, she's looking for a husband. And so there's this tension here, like hopeful uh, about those two connecting, hitting it off, and then like a happily ever after scenario. And, and so things are looking up for Naomi and Ruth. But at the end of chapter two, nothing really happens. Boaz and Ruth have been spending months probably, at least weeks, several weeks, rubbing shoulders in the fields and and nothing really materializes out of this relationship and and chapter two ends with Ruth still working in the field. Now one of the things that is tricky about telling the story of Ruth is that the story feels like it moves quickly because it's so short but really, there's a lot of time elapsing here as things go on. So from the time they moved from Moab to, or from Bethlehem to Moab, there's 10 years that goes by, the, the long journey back to Bethlehem, the whole duration of the harvest of sitting and waiting, hoping that God would provide this redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. So there's a lot of, of waiting here. Now, I think that's what it feels like when we're living life on the broken road. It seems like our patience gets tried. It seems like things should be moving faster than they are, but sometimes it feels like we're moving painfully slow. We wonder, like, God, what are you doing? Why can't we just move on? Now, last week we got to drive around in San Francisco, get up in the mountains uh, of Sausalito, a little town outside of San Francisco, and, and the, the mountains and the, you know, the land, the layout of the land is just unlike anything that's around here. And as my wife and I are driving through here, we're just like kind of driving super slow because, first of all, I'm scared because these are steep hills. Uh, we're, we're driving around, we're trying to absorb the sights, and as I'm driving slowly through these twists and t- turns on the mountainsides and stuff, I'm like, I realize that there are people behind me, probably locals, that are like, what is this guy doing? Like, come on, dude. Like, just move it. And I think that's what happens in our scenario. Like, when things are moving slower than we want them to, we have this tendency to want to push forward. And in our impatience, we become frustrated. We become become desperate, and and so we're tempted to blaze a new path, right? There was one time a car literally right around me. They they just wanted to move around. And so I think we get that way in our lives when we're feeling the slowness and and just sort of sometimes the painful slowness of our own broken road where we just wanna blaze a new path. And so we become prone to manipulating things, 
prodding and rushing, meddling, getting in the way of of things or, or pushing our own agenda in a way that signifies a lack of trust in God. It's like, God, I gave you time. What are you doing? I guess if you're not gonna do anything, I'm gonna do something. And what happens is that we try to fulfill God's plan. Like if I say, I think this is God's plan for my, I think this is what God is leading me to. I think this is the vocation. I think this is the relationship. I think this is whatever it might be that God is leading me toward. And we kind of rush it. And we set out to do God's plan in our own way. Now, now it's a good thing for us to want to do God's plan, to carry out his will, what he would have for our lives, but when we start to do it in our own way, what happens there is we bring about difficulties and brokenness even on this path, this broken path. Now, if we rush past the end of chapter two and into chapter three, it might look like Naomi's doing that. It might look like Naomi is meddling, she's being manipulative, she's doing something that, that actually, is, we'll see here, is a little bit scandalous, but what we actually see is Naomi has demonstrated patience, a lot of it. Not only did she wait through the barley harvest, but she waited through the wheat harvest, that she's waiting on God, and here, as the harvest comes to a close, Naomi sees one last opportunity, because up to this point, Boaz has obviously been kind and gracious to Ruth and, and Naomi, but they, they haven't, like, that spark hasn't come into a flame yet. And say, so Naomi sees one last opportunity to get Ruth in front of Boaz, to kind of, to, to help them hit it off before harvest ends and their chance of interaction goes away. And so Naomi shrewdly in sort of a wise and cunning yet very precise kind of way she makes a plan that will lead Ruth to the threshing floor and meet Boaz there now there's a lot of cultural stuff that we don't understand like we I don't I don't have you guys been to a threshing hall uh, threshing floor recently I haven't um, so so we kind of have to unpack what is, what is this what does what does this look like Okay, so after a harvest is done, what happened is the, the farmers would take their crop and take it to the threshing floor. It's a, a kind of a communal area where everybody would kind of come and bring their harvest and they would separate the seed from the chaff. So like the product that's actually helpful for making food or you could sell at market, they would separate it from the stalks and the, the chaff of the product. And so what they do is they take their product, they'd crush it, they'd walk on it, they'd probably have animals, livestock walk across it, and then they would take a winnowing fork and they would kind of scoop it up and throw it in the air and they would have a breeze that would take the, the scraps away and the seed would fall back down. They'd sweep it up, take it to market. Now, the threshing floor, the work would typically happen in the evening because during the day, there was either no wind or the wind was too strong, and so the evening wind provided the perfect amount of wind to push away the chaff and let the seed fall. So this is a setting here. Uh, it's communal. There's a, the, the community is around. A lot of people are bringing their harvest to this common place outside of the city. It's at evening usually, and, and typically, spirits are pretty high because, especially coming off of famine, uh, there's something to celebrate. They have, it's payday. They got, they've got their grain, they're gonna take it to market, they're gonna get paid, and then they have the, what they need to get set up for the rest of the year. 
So it's really a, a place of, of hard work. There are men and women who are working really hard late into the evening um, and celebrating in a wholesome way. Um, they're celebrating with food and drink. Yet, there were times where this celebration could cross over from uh, wholesome celebration into vice, where gluttony and drunkenness set in. Now, when you see guys who are a little bit tipsy, or maybe a lot of bit tipsy, and now they got money, there are women who are a, a vir- some sort of entrepreneurs who see this as an opportunity, right? This guy's, uh, his judgment is compromised. He's got money. I want money. You can put two and two together and see where this is going, right? And so there were times where these women, prostitutes would come and they would comb the area looking for men who would take them up on this opportunity. And so there's this place where the threshing floor could be a good thing, right? A virtuous, a celebration of God's providence and his blessing upon his people, but also easily there's a line that gets crossed where it turns into vice, right? And we need this background information to understand the significance of what Naomi is saying here as we move into Ruth chapter three. If you wanna follow along, it'll be up on the screen here. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, right? We talked about this kinsman redeemer. He's a relative with whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Now, she's saying, like, look, Ruth has been working out in the field for a long time. She's probably got dirty garb on. Her hands are dirty. She's got dirt on her fingernails. She's been working hard. Now, Naomi's saying, hey, clean yourself up. Look, look nice. Put on a nice gown. And, and some scholars would say that, that this is actually, like, almost wedding attire, that she would wash her hair, make herself smell good, put on uh, attractive clothes. It's like, okay, given the background of the threshing floor, I don't, I don't know if this is moving in the right direction here. But then it, it seems to get a little more scandalous. She says, don't make yourself known to the man that is Boaz until he's finished eating and drinking. So, like, Boaz is probably a little buzzed here. Don't make yourself known until he's in a good mood. And when he lies down, observe where he lies down. Then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And if you have a daughter, you're like, this is terrible advice, right? This is not, this is not good counsel. This seems pretty sketchy. It's very suggestive to us. But it would be even more scandalous to the Hebrews who are reading this, this, this story because they, unlike us, realize this idea, this concept, or this language of uncovering the feet is actually a euphemism. It's, it's not PG, folks. And so, and so the people who are reading this are like, what is, what is Naomi thinking? This is scan. How could she put her daughter-in-law in this line? Like th- this is risky. This is this is poor judgment. And so this is where we have to realize that this is not the way you go about a godly relationship. This this is descriptive of what's happening, not prescriptive. So so like if you're looking for a relationship, this is not the way to go about it. 
But this is telling us what happened. Now, we might wonder, why would Naomi put Ruth in this kind of situation? This seems, this seems downright irresponsible. But what the author is actually showing us here and how she or he portrays Naomi and Ruth and Boaz is that this is actually a, a, a well-thought-out plan that's on, it's on the border of scandal, but, it, but Naomi is doing this out of an earnest desire for Ruth. Actually, if you go back and think back through chapter one, uh, when Naomi is trying to convince her daughters-in-law to stay back in Moab, she says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you will find rest in a new husband's home. Right? Orpah kind of takes her up in that prayer, stays back in Moab, and, and hopefully she, we don't find out for sure, but maybe she found it. But here we see Ruth, uh, and now it's like this prayer, it's almost as if Naomi is answering her own prayer. She, she's taking a strategic initiative for this to happen. That, that Naomi, or excuse me, that, that Naomi is, is hoping that Ruth can find rest with a new husband. Now this is a literal rest, like a rest from the fields. We've seen that throughout the whole harvest, Ruth is working hard, and so hopefully she can rest from that kind of a work. But, but really what Naomi is getting at here is a deep rest, like a soul rest. A deep security and stability, not just in a husband, but, but what in the opportunities a new husband in that society, in that age, would offer her. Because Naomi realizes that like at this time, Naomi and Ruth, they're like, it's like a team of two. It's like they got each other's back, but at this moment in time, there's not really anybody else who has their back, except for the little bits that we've seen from Boaz. And so Naomi knows that without a husband in this society, in this day and age, that life will get exponentially harder for Ruth if Naomi were to die because that just leaves her as a foreigner in a distant land with no husband, with no lineage, with no care, no provision, no safety. And so we can say, look, this, is, this isn't Naomi scheming in a sinister way. This is, this is a sincere effort on Naomi's behalf to help Ruth. And shockingly, even though this seems scandalous and, and very bizarre, Ruth does just as Naomi says. She goes to the threshing floor, she finds Boaz, she comes in the middle of the night and uncovers his feet, she lays down at his feet, and actually it's literally his feet, not what it would be suggestive of in a euphemism way, but she lays down at his feet, and the cool breeze of the evening rushes over Boaz, makes his tootsies cold, he wakes up, he's wondering what's going on, and he finds this woman at his feet. Now, Boaz knows, I went to bed alone, now there's a woman here. This is shocking. This is why it says that there's sort of fear or he was startled. It's not that he was actually afraid, it's like, what in the world's going on here? Something's not right. And in this moment, what we see here, given what the scenario that Naomi set up, um, Ruth and, and Boaz both find themselves entering the crucible of temptation. Now you might wonder, like, who, who would this be tempting to, right? What kind of man would this scenario be tempting to? Any dude with a pulse. Yeah, yeah, for real. It's like, 
There's a beautiful lady at his feet. They're alone. It's private. Like, this would be a place where that kind of behavior would be socially acceptable if they opted in. So it would be a tempting thing for Boaz to say, oh, yeah, 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 okay. All right, all right. I get, I get the hint that you're putting down. I'm picking it up. But here's the deal. It, it's so easy to, to, like, now that we kind of understand the complexities of this interaction, it'd be so easy for us to get kind of caught up on the scandal of the scenario, right? The suggestive nature what, of what's happening. But the focus of the story isn't on the plan. It isn't on the plan that Naomi laid out and Ruth executed. The focus of the story is on the character of Ruth and Boaz. See, this is a defining moment for them. This is a big moment that how they conduct their behavior, how they carry themselves in this compromised situation is going to dictate, it's going to influence how their future plays out. Their character, their reputation is hanging in the balance. Now it's interesting here in the book of Ruth, this is maybe one of the only books and and some of the only characters throughout scripture who are portrayed in a unanimously positive light. Throughout this whole book so far, Ruth has been praised for her loyalty to Ruth, or to to Naomi. She's demonstrated her hased, her steadfast love, her kindness, her thoughtfulness. We've seen the same in Boaz, that he's presented in a positive light. This is incredibly rare for scripture to do, because scripture knows how nuanced, that nobody is fully good, nobody's fully evil. We're all kind of this blend, even David. King David, who is said to be a man after God's own heart, we see some of the most catastrophic, evil things come out of this man. That he has an affair with Bathsheba, he kills Bathsheba's husband, so he can get to her, right? This man, like, we have this mix, but the story is unique in that Boaz and Ruth are portrayed in almost a unanimously positive light. And so we are wondering, at this moment, what's gonna happen? Will will lust, will the temptation overcome them? Will their character be compromised? Will their values and their integrity fall apart? Or will they continue to demonstrate the godly character that's been portrayed up to this point? Now let's take a look. Verse eight. At midnight, the man was startled. And he turned over and behold, a woman was at his feet and he said, who are you? That's a good question to ask. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. Or if you look down at the footnotes here, if you've got the ESV Bible, it's like spread your wings. It could also mean the corners of your garment. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, This is a huge risk. I mean, like throughout the story, we've seen Naomi and Ruth taking risks. They've been taking initiative. They've been ingenuitive. Is that a word? Yes, it is. Uh, They've been taking risk, and they're, they're taking these opportunities to step forward in faith. This is the biggest step of faith that Ruth has taken in the story. Because not only is this an interaction that's in a compromised setting, like, where she could be violated, where Boaz could misinterpret this and he could take advantage of her, she could be humiliated. But this is a risk because what Naomi, or what what Ruth is doing is basically requesting marriage. This is how we know, like, this is not an attempt for a one-night stand. 
She's requesting, will you be our redeemer, right? And this goes back to this language of kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer would be the next of kin from the deceased uh, husband who would step in his brother's place to provide a son or a daughter or a carrier of the name who would redeem his brother's property, who would... um, take care of the provisions and his wife to make sure everything was taken care of. And that's what she's asking. Would you be our kinsman redeemer? Now this could go really bad. Like this is, this, this is actually quite uh, a presumptuous stance or a huge request for Ruth to make because what could happen is Boaz could say, no, who are you? You are a foreigner, like, I don't know you that well. And he could dismiss her. He could ridicule her. And in, in, in this society, one of the biggest pieces uh, is this, this idea of being blessed or being cursed. Like, he could curse her, send her away, humiliate her. And that would really ruin any future chances of her finding a guy that would take her in. What happens here is Boaz actually commends her in verse 10. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now here's how we we begin to see the character of Boaz. By calling her my daughter, she's not actually his daughter, right? He's giving her a title that's showing her honor and dignity and he's showing respect to, to Ruth in this moment. He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now what's he talking about? This first kindness, the second kindness. The first kindness that he's speaking of is in the the fact that Ruth bound her loyalty to Naomi and left her own home of Moab and moved back to Bethlehem. The second kindness that Boaz is speaking about is that Ruth, from what we understand, she's a beautiful woman. Like she's probably pretty young. Most people say 20s, you know, early 20s at, at the most. She's got a lot of opportunity. Like she, she could go and marry for money. She could find somebody who's wit, rich, you know, tap into some of those research, or she could find somebody who's poor and marry for love. Now, here's what we're seeing here, is that Ruth is laying her own preference down. She's sacrificing, out of loyalty for Naomi, she's sacrificing this preference of what she could do in her own marriage and say, I'm going to seek out a kinsman redeemer for my family. And Boaz acknowledges this, and he, he blesses her. And in verse 11, he says, now my daughter, do not fear. Because she, here she is, she's making this huge request. She, she should probably be shaking in her boots. Boaz says, I will do for you all that you ask. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. We see the character of Boaz is exemplary. The, the character of Ruth is notable, that, that her reputation is a good reputation. And she has done, she has not sinned, she has not violated any of these circumstances. But there's a, a catch. There, there's, there's a little bit of a hang up here in this narrative because everybody's rooting for Ruth and Boaz, right? We, we want to see them get together. But Boaz says, listen, this is true. He says, it is true that I'm a redeemer. So he says, I've got the cap- capability to offer you, to do for you what you want. And he says, I'll, I'll do it. 
but there's a redeemer who is nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now he's saying here, look, yeah, Boaz said, yes, I'm a redeemer. Yes, I can step into that role. But listen, there's somebody who's next in line. There's another dude who has, has, he's more entitled to that opportunity. And listen, it would be a good opportunity. But Boaz wants to do what is right. But then here, as we move through verses 14 through 17, we see even more of Boaz's godly character on display. Not only does he not take advantage of the situation, the the author makes it clear that nothing frisky happens. That that their relationship, even if it's in this compromised scenario, they remain pure. They, They don't... They don't overstep what is permissible, nor does Boaz send her away in the middle of the night because that would be dangerous for Ruth. He's looking out for her, offers her protection. Stay here for the night. I will protect you. And then we see later on that that Boaz wakes her up early in the morning and sends her out before anybody can recognize who's anybody to protect her reputation. He's concerned about her, not his own wants and desires. And then again, the, the generosity of Boaz, we just keep seeing it time in and time out. As, as Ruth is leaving, it says that he, he gives her some grain. He loads her up, what scholars say, about like 80, somewhere between 75 to 90 pounds of grain for her to take home. Like Ruth's a strong chick. She loads it up, she puts it on her, and she starts taking off in the morning. Boaz blesses her generously. And, and it's interesting, the, it's like six measures of barley. If you know like the number system or you know like familiar with the idea of numbers through scripture, like six is the the number of incompletion, right? And seven is to be complete. So it's like this offering that Boaz gives her is like hinting, look, my gift, my generosity to you has not yet been complete. It's foreshadowing to what we're gonna see next. Now if we step back from the scenario and certainly this is shocking. There's a lot of bizarre stuff going on. But the real shocker of chapter three is not the, the weird predicament that Ruth and Boaz find themselves in. The real shocker of chapter three is the godly character that Ruth and Boaz demonstrate in this predicament. Now mind you, this is happening during the time of Judges. And what's said of the time of Judges that everybody does what's right in their own eyes. There's relative morality. Everything's subjective. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. It would have been, been okay, social, socially okay for Ruth and Boaz. Yeah, everybody, this is accepting. Everybody accepts this in our culture. But they don't. They, they are both devoted to God in, in their own character. Not to mention, that as we read through scripture, there are other scenarios that are similar to this, these, these compromising scenarios where it doesn't go well. You think about like Abraham and Sarah and how they get Hagar involved. Doesn't go well. You think of Judah and Tamar. That scenario doesn't go well. You think of Lot and his daughters. Like These are like cringeworthy stories that you're not gonna read about in Sunday school. But these are scenarios where people are in compromising situations and their integrity, their character breaks down. 
But Ruth and Boaz have a different narrative. Their godly character drives them to do the right thing. We see this even in how we contrast uh, Ruth from her contemporary women of that time that would have been on the threshing floor. Like Ruth comes in a secretive, reserved, quiet sense. She's not drawing attention to herself. Those other ladies on the threshing floor would be loud and obnoxious, trying to gain attention, trying to find a suitor. Ruth has this reputation of good character that precedes her, that she's loyal, she's godly, that she's a worthy woman. The other women, they're just following the money. Ruth has a powerful and subdued beauty that's not not just external but internal. These other ladies, they have this cheap, flashy glam. It was so interesting. In in the layout of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Proverbs ends with with Proverbs 31. You know, the Proverbs 31 is is like the Proverbs of a godly woman. And the question is like, where, where can we find an excellent woman. Where can we find this? Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the story of Ruth comes exactly after Proverbs 31. Who is this godly woman? Where can we find her? Ruth. She's this type of godly woman. She's excellent. She's godly. She's upright. She's loyal. She, she carries about chesed. We talk about God's steadfast love that, that gets reconveyed through humans. And because of her loyalty and her godliness, we see she is blessed by God. Boaz says it. Blessed are you, my daughter. So we see that Ruth is this upright, godly woman. Boaz, too, he's a godly man. And we see this time and time again that he does the right thing even when it's hard, even when temptation is pulling him in, in, in a way that would be compromising or even socially acceptable. And he's not just Midwest nice, right? I, th- I think we have this thing in the Midwest where we, we tend to have cultural narratives, cultural assumptions, cultural norms, where we just are nice people, we're good people. That's what we can say about the blue-collar, down-to-earth, family-oriented Midwesterners. We're good people. But there's a distinction between good people and godly people. See, Boaz is a godly man. Godly character is the result of a daily and personal experience of God's chesed. That Boaz, the only reason that Boaz can be generous and strong and safe and compassionate and tender and kind and gracious and take action is because he has experienced all that in the work and person of God. The caliber of Ruth and Boaz's character is revealed to us here in the crucible of temptation. Their integrity and their loyalty and their devotion to God is on display where others have failed. Now who knows? Who knows how this would have turned out if this scenario was compromising the character? Now based on those other scenarios that I told you about with Sarah Abraham, with Tamar Judah, with Lot and his daughters, like we see that all of those scenarios go poorly, that things do not go according to God's plan. In fact, some of these people are trying to shortcut God's plan and do God's plan in their own way. That's the deal with Sarah and Abraham. Like God promised them a child, they're getting old, it's like I don't think this is gonna happen, so let's 
let's make this happen. Hey, Hagar, come here. Right? Not God's plan. And what happens? Ishmael, the, the child who comes out of that relationship between Abraham and Hagar, he's cursed. He doesn't receive the blessing because it is not a child that's conceived through God's way. So we can see when we're weak in our faith and we have a compromised character and we act upon those things, it always has the potential to make the broken road even more broken. Our character, if it is breaking down, we have the potential to make things worse. I don't know about you, my life's already complex enough. I don't wanna add to the intensity of the complexity and difficulty. Now as we navigate our broken road, we will have defining moments like this. We will. We'll have moments that are going to either demonstrate our weak, godly character or demonstrate a resiliency in our godly character. We have the opportunity to either stand up godly men or women with conviction who do the right thing even when it's not easy or we can fold. We can give in to the temptations that are pulling at us. Now this doesn't just apply to sexual temptation, although it's like the sexual temptation seems to be the most apparent of the temptations. Though this this idea of sexual temptation, resisting that temptation is very relevant in our culture. This temptation can be a myriad of other things. It, It could be a temptation to move toward a false comfort, right? Oh, it's more comfortable to be tucked away in my own home you know, in front of my, my comfy couch than it is to step into some of the mess, step into some of the, the responsibility that God might have for me. It's easy to hide behind a, a false peace or safety. It's easy for us to chase that fast dollar. It's easy for us to push away our, and abdicate our responsibility. See, in those moments, that's our ungodly character. That's a distrust in God that is rearing its head. Because we're saying, God, I might trust you about what you're trying to do, but I'm gonna do it my own way. Friends, the best way to articulate what this is, it is when we do this, we are living in the way that we see fit. Not, Not according to what God sees fit or how God would want us to live or how he'd want us to abide in his will, but we're living by our own standard, by how we See, fit. let me ask you, does your, does your character lack this kind of godliness that Boaz and Ruth display? Are there places in your life where you're compromising? Where it's blatant disobedience? Or maybe it's more subtle. You know, maybe you're like, oh God, I, I'm all in it for your, your will, but I, I wanna do it my own way. See, when we live this way, when we do things according to our own way, what's right in our own eyes, we make things harder on ourselves. This this path leads to consequences. It it leads to a curse. Not like somebody standing there and laying a hex on us, but the fact that we're choosing a broken road, an even more broken road to go down instead of the road that God lays out for us. And it might not be right away where this curse happens or we experience it, but eventually down the line, this curse catches up with us. 
And while godly character can protect us from things getting worse, godly character does not guarantee a smooth road. It doesn't. To see this, all we have to do, we have to look at Jesus. Nobody had a higher character than Jesus. Every step of the way, he had a conviction to do God's will, God's way. Even in the garden, as he's about ready to go to the cross, he's saying, God, if this is your will, I'm gonna do it, but but if it's not your will, I don't wanna do it. It's like, I'm willing to do things your way, God, even if it means my life is crushed. See, his whole life was living in the crucible of temptation. Right when he was baptized, Satan took him out to the desert, tempted him while he was fasting. Yet time and time again, Jesus' godly character was displayed. He was setting out to do God's will, God's way. Now listen, friends, don't misinterpret this as some sort of moralistic sermon where I'm telling you just to be a good person. Be a good, listen, that's not what I'm saying. Because our character cannot save us. Our character cannot save us. No matter how godly we try to be, it cannot save us because there are always going to be failures along the way. But our trust in Jesus' perfect godly character does save us. See, Jesus, by living the most godly life, He paid the price by doing, accomplishing God's will, God's way, and so paying for our character flaws and our failures and our sins. See, Jesus, theoretically, by living the perfect life, he deserved glory. He deserved respect and honor and praise, but Jesus trades that. He takes our brokenness. He takes the dangerous road that we choose every time we choose to sin, every time we choose to do life our own way. Jesus takes the curse on the cross. See, in this, his perfect godly character is displayed in that Jesus doesn't set out to, for his own interests. He lays his life down for ours so that through his obedience, through his faith, through his godly character, we are blessed when we put our faith in him. And when you understand that Jesus did that for you, like when you understand that Jesus died for you, you can't help but want to live for him. Like that, that, that's the posture of a Christian. Nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's, that's us saying, not my way, but we wanna do things God's way. We wanna take action in being godly men and women. And the way that you become a godly man or woman is by understanding the chesed, the steadfast love, the character of Jesus and how he put that all on the line for us. And the more we meditate on that, the more we practice and make habits out of doing things God's will and God's way, the more virtuous become, the more solidified our character is. So that way when we go into the the crucible of temptation, we can come out victorious. Through God's power and God's help. See, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life if you are a Christian. He's making us, he's empowering us He's making us more like Jesus. 
He's empowering us to endure the daily temptations and trials that come our way and making us strong. Actually, one, one of the passages, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses six through nine, really hammers at this idea. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're gonna, you're gonna enter into the crucible of temptation. There are gonna be predicaments that are not ideal. And you're gonna go through them so that the tested genuineness of your faith, that, that is a, a faith that creates a godly character, a faith that produces righteous action, would be more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, through the work of the Holy Spirit, being reminded of what Jesus has done for us that allows us to make our way through temptation, to navigate the broken road and maintain godly character. Not because it saves us, but because Jesus had saved us by his. It's our response to God's steadfast love. The Lord's Supper, as we come to the table today, reminds us of who Jesus is his, and what he has done for us. It reminds us of his godly character that he would lay down his life for us. And in that he is strengthening us. As we eat this meal, as we consume, it is the power of God at work. The spirit is empowering us to live the life that we've been called to. Let us not grow weary, friends. Let us not compromise, but wholeheartedly say, man, because of what you've done, my my life is yours. It's like the song we say, I'll build my life upon your love. That's my prayer for us, church. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that Jesus was the upright redeemer that we were needing. And at the opportune moment in, in, in our greatest need, he came and he laid his life down that he was sacrificial, he was steadfast, he was loyal, he did your will your way. And God, in following Jesus, would you help us be like him? Would you instill in us godly character? Make us men and women who do not compromise under the weight of temptation, but entrust ourselves to you and what you're doing. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.